The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study of the Upper Room Discourse. This is the Lord's last few hours of his life, spending it with his disciples, teaching them, trying to prepare them for his departure. Now, in our study last week, we focused on verses 12 through 15 of chapter 16. And so for our time this morning, I want to back up and just focus on a phrase in verse 13. It says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, as I said last week, in the history of the church, this phrase has been used and abused. Many have claimed spirit guidance into the things they did that have nothing to do with the Spirit of God. Do any of you remember who Andrea Yates is? She claims the Spirit led her to do something. What was it? Kill her five children. A mother led by the Spirit to kill her five children. Now, see, that's just, and that's what I mean. You know, when you do something crazy, you do something you <clears throat> irrational or something, you want to blame it on the Spirit. Well, I think that's way off base. And hopefully, as we look at this text again, we'll get some understanding of what exactly he is saying here. Now, last week in the chat room, <clears throat> excuse me, Jeff Rogers asked this question. He said, if the Spirit is guiding believers into the truth of the Word of God today, why is there not more theological conformity and unity among the hundreds of Christian denominations? The results seem to belie the assertion. <laughs> That's a great question, Jeff. And I think the, prom- the problem here is the promise to guide into all truth is primarily directed to the original disciples, those men in that upper room. And the promise to guide into all truth, remember Christ said He is the truth, so it's the Spirit's guidance into understanding Christ. Now the original disciples were getting revelation, were getting inspiration to take the things that the Lord was giving them and put them in the canon of Scriptures. So I think this primarily refers to the inspiration of the authors of the New Testament. This is talking about the many things that he says he had to say to them in verse 12. Remember 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. So he was going to say these things to them later through the Spirit as the Spirit inspired them to write the New Testament. Now, since in the context of the last discourse, Yeshua is preparing His disciples to carry on His ministry after His departure, I just think it seems best to take these statements as specifically related to those disciples. The Spirit guided them in unique, authoritative, and inspired ways. This special group was to be responsible for spreading the good news of Yeshua to the whole world. Now, they had spent three and a half years with them, watching His miracles, hearing His teachings, and they're going to relay those things 
to the rest of the world. And they're going to need God's special remembrance to do these things, to bring to their remembrance everything the Lord taught them, to bring it all back. Plus, there's more things He's going to give them. The completion of the New Testament. So what about today? Does the Spirit guide us into the truth? Well, I think that all depends on what you mean by guide us. Alright? I think the Spirit definitely is at work today to teach us, to help us to understand the Scriptures, to guide us. I don't know what's going on in my throat today. It's the Holy Spirit who opens up the truths of the Bible to us. But it's our responsibility to diligently study the truths of Scripture and dependence on Him. And for those first century disciples, again, it was a matter of revelation. It was a matter of inspiration. God revealed Himself to them. He guided them in the recording of Revelation. For us, it is a matter of illumination. And all these things we're talking about deal with the Word of God. We're not talking about the Spirit guiding us into, you know, what should we have for breakfast today or or who should we marry. Alright, the guidance of the Spirit comes through the Word of God. It's primarily dealing with the Word of God. We see the Spirit's work of illumination in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now the word revealed here is the Greek apocalypto, and it means to take off the cover. God unveiled, demonstrates, shows. At its most basic level, Enlightenment, God opening our eyes, illumination, at its most basic level, deals with the knowledge of sin. The Spirit opens our eyes to the fact that we are sinners, that we are separated from God. Without that knowledge, everything else is pointless. See, Adam's fall into sin and his consequent spiritual death rendered man incapable of comprehending the truth of Scripture. We looked at this last week, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, that's the person without the Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why don't they accept them? Because they're folly to them, they're foolishness. They're not able to understand them. Without the Spirit, you can't. This means that a special work of God is needed to make Scripture understandable to both natural man, unsaved, and saved. We need the Spirit of God to help us to understand this book. <clears throat> I read a story about a seminary professor who was visiting the Holy Land. And he met a man who claimed to have memorized the, the entire Tanakh in Hebrew. Thank you. Whatever it is, thank you. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> now, this is not that untypical either in... <clears throat> In Jewish cultures, the book is important to them. They work hard at memorizing. But this, book, this man claimed to memorize the whole Tanakh, the whole Old Testament. 
Well, the professor was a little bit doubtful, so he says, how about a demonstration? So the guy said, sure, where do we begin? And the professor was an avid student of the psalm, so he replied, let's begin at Psalm 1. So for two hours, the man effortlessly and flawlessly recited the psalms from memory. The whole, all of them. As the professor sat there stunned in silence. When the demonstration was over, the professor was even more astonished when he found out the man was an atheist. <clears throat> Did not believe in God. Here's a man who intellectually could go through the Scriptures. And we see this a lot in the Hebrew culture. Like I said, they, they memorize this Scripture. They, but it's just, not, they don't get it. Because without the Spirit, you don't. This man was not illumined. He didn't get, he didn't understand what he was talking about. Now, <clears throat> also last week in the chat room, Jeff Rogers asked another question. These are great questions, Jeff, by the way. I just, these are questions we have to ask. He says, when two people study the same text and they get two different conclusions, is it the fault of the Spirit or did he guide one and not the other? <clears throat> we see this all the time, don't we? We see Christian people, they take a text, I think it means this, another, I think it means this. So whose fault is it? Who do we blame? Well, since the Spirit is Yahweh, let's not blame Him. <clears throat> okay? Maybe the Spirit guided one or not the other, or maybe He didn't guide either one of them. Okay? <laughs> I don't think... Now, listen carefully to what I'm saying here. I don't think the Spirit's guidance is guaranteed for all believers. In other words, I don't think the fact that you're a Christian guarantees the Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. Yeah, hang on. <clears throat> you see, I think the way to benefit fully from the Scripture's ministry of illumination is to be immersed in the Word of God. Because apart from the Word of God, you are not going to receive the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And here's the problem today. Christians are not immersed in the Word of God. At best, Christians have a casual acquaintance with the book. We pick it up here or there, look at this here and there. We're, we're not... <clears throat> immersed in it. It's not something that we just spend time in learning and, and trying to understand. And we can't expect the Holy Spirit to work apart from the Word of God. It doesn't happen. Revelation is Him giving us an understanding of the truth of God. Illumination is them writing that down. God inspiring that. Illumination is us seeing it understanding it, having a clue about it. But this work of illumination doesn't operate by giving us secret insight that one could not derive by just putting the text in context and understanding the language. It's not like, Lord, make me understand this text, nobody else knows it. I don't think that's what it's about. Illumination is the Spirit taking what is in the text and making it real to us. See, this man quoted all the Psalms, but they weren't real to him. He just he knew the words. He could say the words. They weren't real. 
I think by the illumination of the Spirit, He enables us to understand and apply a text to ourselves. It's the applying of God's revealed truth to our hearts so that we grasp the reality. And we love it. It's exciting to us. It's encouraging to us. He's opening up these truths that maybe we've read over and over, and all of a sudden it's like, now you get it. The Spirit illumines the canon. But He does it through study, meditation, hard work on our part. And study employs all the proper tools of ascertaining the meaning of a text. Meditation thinks about the facts of the text. Putting them together into a harmonious whole and applying them to our own life. The end result of illumination ministry of the Spirit is to glorify Christ. When he says he's going to guide us into all truth, the truth he's talking about there in context is the Lord just said in John chapter 14, I am the truth. So the Holy Spirit is leading us into the truth. He is glorifying Christ. We saw this in verse 14. He will glorify me. He's going to take what is mine and declare it to you. So it's opening our eyes and understanding Christ. It's not concerned with merely facts about a text. It's to promote Christ-likeness. So when we talk about divine illumination, we're speaking about the Holy Spirit's work of making Scripture alive to us. You know, there are times in our lives when we're reading our Bible... And suddenly we're struck by something in the text that we've never noticed before. And I really believe illumination is progressive. In other words, the more you study, the more you're going to learn. The more you're going to grow. Let me give you a couple examples from my own life of what I understand illumination. Philippians 4.13. Everybody know that text? That's a familiar Christian text. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I remember teaching through the book of Philippians and I came to this verse in context and all of a sudden it was like, wow, I never thought of that verse that way before. What does Paul mean, I can do all things through Christ? He means that because he is in communion with Christ, the power of Christ is available to him for every need. Paul cannot do all things simply because he's a Christian. And again, I don't think all Christians can claim this verse. He can do all things because he's living in a dependent relationship with Christ. He's abiding in Christ. Philippians 4.13 can't be claimed by every believer. It's only for those who abide in Christ. When we walk in fellowship with God, we have a power available to help us deal with life. Out of fellowship, we don't have that power. Paul says, I can do all things. What are the all things? This doesn't mean he can leap tall buildings at a single bound, run faster than a speeding bullet. It doesn't mean you can pass an exam you haven't studied for, or fly an airplane you've never taken a lesson for. Verse 13 can't be taken out of context of 10 through 13. And what he is saying, I have the power of Christ to sustain me in life's difficult circumstances. He says, I know how to be abased, And I know how to abound. I can do all things through Christ. I can can live with very little. I can live with a whole lot. I can do it because of Christ 
The literal translation will read like this, I'm strong for all things in the One who constantly infuses strength into me. Now the phrase, I can do, is from the Greek, aiskuno, and it means to be strong, to have power. Paul's saying, I'm strong enough to go through anything because the Lord Yeshua makes His power available to me as I trust in Him. See, trusting in Christ gives us inner power to deal with any and every situation in life. And when it comes to the, we come to the bottom of our human resources, we'll find unlimited power in Christ. You know, we talk a lot about the power of Christ, but walking in fellowship with Christ gives us power to deal with any and every situation. Have you ever seen a Christian in a very difficult situation and you wonder, how do they do it? We can deal with it because the power of Christ is available for those who abide in Him. Those who walk in dependence. No matter what our circumstances are, the power of Christ to deal with those circumstances is available to those who are walking in fellowship with Christ. But again, too often, we're not abiding. And we just think, Lord, why aren't you fixing this for me? I think He brings these situations in our life so we can see how strong we are in Him. Let me give you another illustration. I had a paradigm-shifting moment while I was studying the book of James. When I got to James 1.18, it says, Of His own will brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. I was an Arminian in my soteriology. And this verse really did a number on me. I wasn't looking to change. I was very happy with my Arminianism. Okay? But the text says, of his own will. My first question was, what about my will? I mean, my will should be the important factor in coming to Christ, shouldn't it? Well, as I studied this out, I found out that my will really played no part in salvation. This was a difficult, difficult text for me. Ended up underneath my bed citing the Greek alphabet at times because I was like, this is such a change, you know. But I was being challenged by the text. Look at First John, or John 1, 12 and 13. It says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This text, we're not born by the will of man. Now, the word that Lazarus uses here for man is andros, which means male. Not the generic term for mankind. This word is all... This word is often translated as husband. And the NIV translates it in this text as husband, nor of the will of the husband. This probably refers to the husband's authority in deciding to have a child. So he's saying spiritual life does not come because of human decision. You just don't say, I decided I'll become a Christian. No, you don't. No one decides that. God decides that. So after studying and meditating on James 1.18, I found myself believing in election by the sovereign grace of God. This verse moved me from Arminianism to Calvinism. My eyes were open. Like I said, I wasn't looking to make a change. I was just looking to understand the Scriptures. 
And this verse just tripped me up. There's a whole lot of other verses that could have tripped me up. But I was in James. All right, so this one did it. Let me give you one more illustration. Is Matthew 16 that changed my eschatological position? It says, the Son of Man is going to come. Now, of course, you know, you read this text and you read it like you just got it in the mail that day, forgetting that this was written 2,000 years ago. The Son of Man's going to come. Yay! Well, he's going to come 2,000 years ago. With his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You know, I would read over these verses and I'd say to myself, something I don't get about this text, but maybe later. And once I honestly began to study it, it seemed clear to me that the Lord is promising to return in the second coming before the people He was talking to had all died. Now that's 2,000 years ago. And it just so happens that this fits well with the other references to the second coming in the New Testament. You know, I've read over the time statements over and over. And I even taught audience relevance. But I didn't get it until the Spirit of God opened my eyes to this truth. You know, how many people read the time statements over and over, soon, quickly, shortly, this generation, some of you standing here. We read those and we just think it can't mean that. And we never consider it until the Spirit of God opens our eyes and we understand The second coming was a first century event. Some people just don't see it. And they won't until the Lord opens their eyes. So we could say that illumination in a spiritual sense is turning on the light bulb. Of understanding in some area. You know, I can read what the Bible says about abiding in Christ. We've just gone through a study on that. We can read what the Bible says about being a disciple. But the Spirit has to make that something that I see as important to my life. Or it's just a text. In Psalm 119, we see a cry for God's illumination. He says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. This is a cry not for new revelation, but for things that have been written to be revealed. And just now understood by the reader. It's kind of one of those aha moments. Verse 73 says this, Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may comprehend your commandments. It's a plea for personal understanding. A plea for application of God's laws as they're studied by the individual. Fifteen times in this psalm, God is asked to teach or give understanding regarding His laws. And what's informative is that this psalm, 119, we find a lot of purpose statements connected with the idea of illumination. For example, make me understand the way of your precepts. Why? I'll meditate on your wondrous works. Verse 34, give me understanding. Why? That I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. I want understanding so I can live this out. 125, I'm your servant. Give me understanding. Why? That I may know your testimonies. Verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding. Why? That I may live. See, the illumination always points to an action. Why does God help us understand His Word? So we'll live it. So we'll honor Christ in it. 
Paul wrote to Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. It's an interesting verse. Paul understood our need to couple intellect and illumination. And so he exhorts Timothy, think it over. Seek to intellectually grasp the meaning. That's our responsibility. Think over what I say. Then he says, for the Lord, the Spirit, will give you understanding in everything. This is God's promised provision. So which is it? Are you supposed to just think this over? Is God going to give us understanding? Yes, John Piper explains the text well when he says this. So many people swerve off the road to one side of this verse or the other. Some stress, think over what I say. They emphasize the indispensable role of reason and thinking. And they minimize the decisive supernatural role of the Spirit in making the mind able to see and embrace the truth. Others stress the second half of the verse. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. They emphasize the futility of reason without the Spirit's illuminating work. But Paul will not be divided that way. We must embrace both human thinking and divine illumination. For Paul, it was not either or, but both and. If God does not open our eyes, we will not see the wonder of the Word. That's amazing, and I think that's true. If God doesn't open our eyes, we can study the Word, we can go over it, we're not going to see the wonder of it without illumination. We are not naturally able to see spiritual beauty. The Scriptures teach that the Holy Spirit and the Word operate together. That's so important we understand that. A Puritan, um, <clears throat> Stephen Charnock, wrote this, The Word is the chariot of the Spirit, the Spirit, the guider of the Word. And something that I think is important for understand is that our spiritual condition influences the process of illumination. You understand what I'm saying? You know, people say, I want to be illumined. I want to understand the Word of God. Well, your spiritual condition affects that. Look at me at 1 Corinthians. You know, we've talked before about illumination. I said the three keys of illumination are humility, holiness, and hard work. All right? Humility. I mean, you've got to go to the text saying, God, I want to know what you mean, not what I wanted this to say. Hard work. You've got to apply yourself. You've got to dig and study the Word to find out what it says. But the holiness part is, you can't live in sin and say, God, show me your Word. Wait, you've got a problem. You've got to deal with you. Now, 1 Corinthians 3 1 says, But I, brothers, I can't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, the focus of verses 6 through 16 of chapter 2 is clearly dealing with illumination. We looked at this last week a little bit. Verse 14 and 15 of chapter 2, we see two different categories of men. Verse 14, we see the natural man. He doesn't understand things of spirit. Verse 15, we see the spiritual man. He's spiritual, he can discern these things. The natural man is the unsaved man with no capacity to believe the Bible. The spiritual person is the saved person. They have the ability to judge and discern spiritual things. The spiritual man is spiritual because he's been born again. The Spirit of God indwells him. Now as we come to chapter 3, we see two different categories of those who are spiritual. So we've got the natural man and the spiritual man. Now we've got two categories of the spiritual man. In this verse, we see that among those who are saved, there are some who are spiritual, and there are some who are of the flesh. 
Some are controlled by God's Spirit. Some are controlled by the flesh. Fleshly desires, fleshly impulses. The spiritual man is a man who is dominated by the Spirit. And Paul goes on to say, as people of flesh, as infants in Christ. Now I want you to get that. These people are in Christ, but they're infants. They're of the flesh. They're guided by the flesh. The Corinthians were believers, but the flesh was dominating them, not the Spirit. So we have the natural man who's unsaved. We have the spiritual man who is saved. And among the saved, there are all those who are spiritually mature and those who are of the flesh. Now the word he uses here to describe them sarkikos, it means to be controlled by the flesh. We're commanded in Scripture to be controlled by the Spirit. They're letting the flesh control them. They're baby Christians. And they're being controlled by their impulses. So Paul says, I can't address you as spiritual people, but as people controlled by the flesh, you're babies. You're infants in Christ. He says, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you're not ready for it. Even now, you're not ready. Now notice that he says, what he says about the immature Christian. He has a limited capacity to understand the things of God. They're limited to milk. They can't handle meat. Now, it's not a problem for a baby to drink milk. That's what they're supposed to drink. But when they're five, six, eight years old, then that's a problem if that's all they're drinking is milk. For, for a baby Christian to act like a baby Christian is not a problem. When Paul calls them babies, he's not rebuking them. That's how we all start out. You've got to start somewhere. You're supposed to grow. Now, what's the difference between milk and meat? Are there two areas of truth? I don't think so. I think all doctrines have an area of milk and an area of meat where you, as you mature, you go down deeper, you understand better. These classifications don't refer to areas of truth, but depths of truth. Illumination is progressive. The more we learn, the more we grow, the more we grow, the more we're able to learn. He says in verse 3, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy, this is, a, this is evidence that they're of the flesh, while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? This is a Christian that's controlled by the flesh in willful rebellion against God. This is not immaturity. The evidence of their carnality is clear. Their envy, their strife among them. These are the works of the flesh. And they're being manifested in their lives. So those believers who are living according to the flesh are hindering their ability to understand the Word of God. They can only handle milk. The Spirit's ministry of illumination is hindered in their lives because of their sin. Now from what I understand, being illuminated by the Spirit is connected to the study we just did about abiding in Christ. I think illumination is also connected to the idea of walking by the Spirit. And I think it's connected to the idea of being filled with the Spirit. And I think these are all talking about the same thing. Abiding in Christ. Being controlled by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit. These are all talking about the same things. Now we just finished a study in John 15, 7-11 that uh, talks about abiding in Christ. In verse 4 he said this, Abide in me and I in you. That's a command to believers. All right? 
And then in verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So in verse 7, the phrase, my words abide in you, is substituted for the phrase, I in you. So we could say that for Christ to abide in us is the same thing as His Word abiding in us. People, if I want to stress one thing today, it's the importance of the Word of God in our lives. I don't mean carrying a Bible around. I don't mean reading a verse you know, a day. I mean saturating yourself with this book. So we could say that for Christ to abide, His Word has to abide. He says, my words abide in you. The Greek word used here for words is rhema, which has, usually has the nuance of spoken word. This refers to specifically to the teaching of Christ. For them it referred to what Christ taught. For us it refers to what's in the Bible that Christ taught. The Lord reveals Himself to us through the written Word of God. Not through visions, not through dreams, not through prophecies, through the book. If you want to grow closer to Yeshua, if you want to abide in Him, you've got to spend time in the book. To grow closer to Christ, spend time in your Bible. Learning who He is. Watching how He acted. Read it over and over until you're at home with it. Paul put it this way in Colossians, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now I want you to see something about this text. We've talked about it before. It's very important. This is a parallel text to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Filled, plerao, means control. And then Paul says this, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart. All right, so... He tells the Colossians to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, and then he says this to them, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's clear that these two concepts, letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly and being filled with the Spirit are identical because the results of both of them are identical. The result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is the same as the result of letting the Word of Christ dwell richly in your life. Therefore, the two are the same spiritual reality viewed from different sides. To be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Word of God. When Paul says be filled with the Spirit, he's giving a command. The word filled is plerao, it means control. Let the Spirit of God control you. How does the Spirit of God control you? Through the Word of God. You know the Word of God, you know what it says, the Spirit controls you through that. Believers who have the Spirit are commanded to be controlled by that Spirit. So the question is, how are we controlled by the Spirit? The Spirit's control is not automatic. It's not mechanical. The Spirit's control is brought about by means. We need to take possession of the divine strength He has made available to us in Christ. We appropriate the controlling grace of the Spirit through the means of letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. Believers, we need more than a casual acquaintance with the Bible. 
God's Word should dwell in us abundantly. It's to saturate our lives. It's to become part of our being, transforming the way we think and act. So we abide in Christ through spending time in His Word, allowing the Holy Spirit to have the handle of the Word of God to control us, letting it richly dwell within us. Well, when talking to the Galatians, Paul tells them, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. This is a present tense command. Continue to walk by the Spirit. The Christian walk is a daily routine. It's something you come at, you don't come at one point in time and say, okay, I'm going to walk by the Spirit and that's it. It's something you do every day. From now on, day by day, I'm going to walk by the Spirit. What won't you do when you walk by the Spirit? Well, he says you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were not walking by the Spirit, so they were being controlled by the fleshly impulses. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, I think it's important for us to understand, so let's see if we can practically define it. All of us have heard preachers say, let the Spirit lead you. Allow the Spirit to control you. And, you know, most people go away puzzled as to what in the world does that mean practically. How do we walk by the Spirit? You walk by the Spirit when your heart is resting in the promises of God. The Spirit reigns over the flesh in your life when you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you. Look at Galatians 5.6. For in Christ Yeshua, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So he's saying that faith here, living faith, always produces love. Galatians 5.22 says love is a fruit of the Spirit. So if love is what faith necessarily produces and love is a fruit of the Spirit, then the way to walk by the Spirit is to walk by faith. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So how does Paul walk by the Spirit of the Son? The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Day by day, Paul trusts the Son. Day by day, he casts his cares upon God and is borne along by the Spirit. So how do we walk by the Spirit? The answer is plain. We walk by faith. Faith comes from hearing in hearing by the Word of God. So again, we're back to the Word of God. It's back to knowing what the Bible says. That's why people are so confused today about God and what God wants and what God tolerates and what God doesn't tolerate. Everybody has an opinion. But does it come from the book? Because He gave us this, so He said, you don't have to wonder about what I think. You don't have to wonder about what I want. It's in here. Learn it. But we have a lot of excuses today why we don't. We don't have time. That's the biggest, you know, when an American stands, Christian stands before God and says, I just didn't have time to spend time in the Word. Oh, Lord. We of all people, we have more spare time than any people at all. And yet we do so many things. We're trying to fill our lives with entertainment, with amusement, instead of saturating with the Word of God. 
We need to learn to trust Him in every situation, but we can't trust Him if we don't know Him. We can't know Him if we don't spend time in the Word of God. Listen to what Martin Luther had to say. This guy knew something about struggles, okay? He says, when the flesh begins to cut up, I'm not sure, I don't think he means that the way we use cut up, you know, but maybe he does. He says, the only remedy is to take the sword of the Spirit, the, sword, the word of salvation, and fight against the flesh. If you set the word out of sight, you are helpless against the flesh. I agree with that. You need the word of God. I know this to be a fact, he says. I have been assailed by many violent passions, but as soon as I took hold of some scripture passage, my temptation left me. Without the word, I could not have helped myself against the flesh. To walk by the Spirit is to be controlled by the Word of God. To have the Word dwelling in us richly is to be controlled by the Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit is the author of the power of the Word, the expressions are interchangeable. In other words, the Word-filled Christian is the Spirit-filled Christian. But again, it's not just a matter of academic study, because the Spirit has to make the Word real to you. And He does this as you submit to the Word and live in holiness. The Word of Christ is the only source of truth we have about God. There's no other, you're not going to get information about God from any other place other than this book. Paul writing to Timothy said, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Paul is telling Timothy that the Bible comes from God. He is the ultimate author. The Bible provides information that's not available anywhere else. The Bible is divine self-disclosure. In it, the mind of God is revealed on all kinds of things that we need to know. With the knowledge of Scripture, we don't have to rely on second-hand information or bare speculation to learn what God is and what He values. In the Bible... God reveals Himself. So if you want to know Him, spend some time in the book. 1 John 5.3 says, This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. That's how we demonstrate we love God. How many people have you heard say, Oh, I love God. What does that mean? I just have this warm feeling about God. No, it's got nothing to do with feelings. The love of God is demonstrated by obedience to Him. We love Him by living in obedience. So how can we possibly do this if we don't know what we're supposed to do? We don't know what obedience is. And how can we know what obedience is if we don't spend time in the Word of God? He's our Creator. He's our Redeemer. If we're going to have a life of purpose, we need to know who He is and we need to know what He expects from us. And the only place we get that information is from the Word of God. And I believe the only way we can walk by the Spirit is to have the Word of God dwelling within us. We grow in our Christian walk as we read, as we study the Bible. The only place we're going to hear God's voice is in the Word. The world around us is always going to be giving us the view of the flesh. We only get God's view as we spend time allowing the Word of God to abundantly dwell within us. Now Paul's not saying, let the Word of Christ have a few minutes of your time every day or every week. He's saying, let the Word of Christ live in you, dwell in you, abide in you, be part of you. 
And boy, today, in this day and age, we have absolutely no excuse because we can have the Bible anywhere we want it. It's on your computer, it can be on your phone, you got a thumb, anywhere you are. You, you have the Bible, you can read the Bible, you can spend time in the Bible. It should permeate every aspect of our life. You know, when something happens in your life, the first thing that should happen is the Scripture should come to mind. Oh, I know how to handle this. Here's what the Bible says. And we respond to those circumstances biblically. When this happens, we yield to the Scripture, and we're walking by the Spirit, and we learn, and we open ourselves up to grow more. But usually, the response to a circumstance is the flesh. How should I deal with this? Paul says, walk by the Spirit. The Greek word for walk here is very ordinary. It just means to move from one place to another. It's in the present tense, which means keep on walking. To walk means take a series of steps. You start out small, but you keep going in the same direction. It implies progress. To walk in the Spirit means something like let your conduct be directed by the Holy Spirit. Make progress in your life by relying on the Spirit. It has the idea of allowing the Holy Spirit to guide every part of your life on a daily basis. And to walk by the Spirit means that we are maintaining an ongoing communion with God. You can't walk by the Spirit if you're not doing that. We're exercising those spiritual disciplines that keep our hearts focused on the Lord and turns our feet away from sin, that warms our love for Christ. How are you going to walk by the Spirit if you're not in communion with Him. You can't do it. The Spirit-filled life of walking by the Spirit is the equivalent of living a Christ-like life. And again, walking by the Spirit involves saturating my life with the person of Christ. He has to dominate my thought patterns. The Spirit's work, as we said, is to point to Christ. Walking by the Spirit means that my life is patterned after the Lord, and I want to respond in a Christ-like manner to whatever the situation might be. Whether it be traffic on the highway, whether it be my neighbor, whatever it is, I want to respond Christ-like. We can't do that if we're not saturated by the Word. So illumination is the Spirit's work in those who are walking by the Spirit. Illumination is the Spirit's work in those who are filled with the Spirit. It's the work of those who are abiding in Christ. These are all similar concepts. When we're saturated, and they all are connected with the Word of God. You can't do any of these things apart from the Word of God. Illumination is the applying of God's revealed truth to our hearts so we can grasp the reality of what the sacred text sets forth. But it's not just about the Spirit coming and saying, well, you need to buy this or not buy that or get this house or get that car or get this wife. It's about what does the text say? How do I respond to that text? What is the Word of God? How do I do whatever I'm going to do in a Christ-like manner? All these concepts, they're not mystical. We abide in Christ when we abide in His Word. We walk by the Spirit when we walk in His Word. We're controlled by the Spirit when we're controlled by the Word of God. It's the Spirit's job to take the Word of God and open our eyes to understanding it. But again, I think there's three keys to it. Humility. You've got to go at the text. Not acting like you know it all. 
I'm going to make this text fit what I believe. No, just don't. That's so foolish. Let the text speak. Go before the Lord in humility. Ask Him to teach you. Humility, holiness. You've got to deal with sin. If you're not dealing with sin, God's not going to reveal more. And the third is hard work. We've got to spend time in the text trying to understand what it says. And when the text saturates our life, the Spirit can control our life. And we'll bring honor to Him. We'll live as Christ's representatives. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we have so much to learn. Give us the heart, Lord, of Bereans, that we would search the Scripture daily to see if things are so. May we desire, Lord, You. A relationship, an intimate relationship with You. Walking with You. Loving You. Serving You. Lord, teach us from Your Word as we apply our hearts to it. Amen.